Jesus lads it's like the Christmas never happened all over the decorations are down the tree is gone off the edge of the balcony or down behind the shed now and you know what i probably won't get rid of it until may but these things happen early january it is the irish in sweden podcast they are listening above on the building sites in lulio and in the university in gothenburg and over in kalmar and in kichansta and down below in malmo where they were in fagan's pub yesterday getting together for a few drinks and to hang out uh, one of the first swedish irish society events of the year we're going to give it the official title down there even though it was just a local community getting together it's great to hear it uh, if you're only recently moved to sweden my name is philip o'connor this podcast is for you it's supported by you more of which later you're very welcome along do me a favor share it right fire it out there let other people know about it because uh, it always happens that um Somebody will come up to you and they will say, oh yeah, geez, I never knew that podcast existed and I just want to bang my head off the wall because, you know, you think you know everybody and you think you're reaching everybody, but of course you're not. We all operate in our own little networks. So if you listen to this and you enjoy the conversation that I'm going to have with Chris O'Neill about the sport of handball and the World Championships and his move to here Sweden, please feel free to share it on LinkedIn and on Instagram. Apparently it's very important now that you go in and give it a five-star rating, you know, and if you can do that every week, fair play to you. Just click on your podcast app there on Spotify or on SoundCloud or a Podbean or whatever you use and leave a little comment saying that guy's an idiot or that's brilliant I really enjoyed it because apparently uh, the more people who do things like that the more the podcast gets recommended and the more I stop annoying you and asking you to share it. Um, I hope you're very well. Before we get into the interview with Chris, there's a few little things that I'd like to tell you about. One is that the lovely people at the Irish Embassy here were of great help to me lately. And you will know this if you were listening to the Global Gale podcast, which is another one I do for the, the global Irish community, uh, because I applied for a passport card. And what I didn't know is that our legendary ambassador, Austin Gormley, was behind the idea of the passport card, right? And the passport card is basically the size of your driving license, basically the size of a credit card. And it's a passport. And you can travel to loads of countries and you can use it. Now, Joe O'Neill over in London was saying that he had one or two problems getting into Britain with it, but eventually they had to let him in because of the Good Friday Agreement and that, my God, the ceasefire was under threat or something, the way Joe was telling the story anyway. But yeah, uh, so I got that the other day because I have to send in my regular passport, the one with all the pages in it, for a visa application. And I was very glad to get it, lads, because I got that phone call that none of us wants to get, right? And it's one of those phone calls where you find out that somebody is sick at home and you just have to go. Now, as it was, I still had my passport there. But when I turn it in for the visa application, it's going to be gone for two to three weeks. And, you know, that's a terrible situation to find yourself in when you can't leave the country because you don't have the documentation needed, you know. So now I effectively have two passports and mine are valid now. So I have the, the one with all the pages in it, valid till the 26th of October, 2020 something, can't remember. Uh, and the passport card is also valid and I can use that to get to Ireland. So I was able to go to the post office yesterday and send off my passport. You know what? Take your time, lads. I'm grand. Austin Gormley and the boys and girls at the embassy have sorted me out. So it's a really, really good idea and you know what else it does lads it prevents the situation whereby you're going home to ireland for the christmas or you're going home to ireland for a wedding and you realize jesus my passport is out of date right and that really is anybody who has been and i know there's a few of you listening to this podcast who've been in that situation right the sinking feeling you get when that happens is indescribably bad right it's just ah jesus because you're gonna hear it from the family at home you're gonna hear it from the mates here and from the family here so it's just it's a really really good idea to have some sort of a backup there right now if you're a swedish citizen 
maybe have a passport that you can travel on you've got to be careful of that though because it's not just getting up in the morning and going right well and go to america oh well i think today i'll take the swedish passport no because your esta or your work visa might be attached to it or whatever else you know so you've got to be careful around that but certainly the passport card which austin gormley was a part of the development of when he worked back in that uh, section of the department of foreign affairs and they did a brilliant job on it it's definitely 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 worth happening the process was absolutely painless you can just google irish passport card and you'll come to the links on the Department of Foreign Affairs website about how you apply. I think it cost me 50 euros, I can't remember, and it was delivered. It only took about 10 days. Now, that may be because the lovely and wonderful Doreen Burke uh, put in a word for me. I don't know, can't say. We're arriving about 10 days anyway, and I just went to the post office last night, and I signed the form, and there it was, and now it's in the wallet, and I'm going to bring it with me pretty much everywhere, because you never know in the business that I'm in when you're going to need it. So I can strongly advise that. Now, if if everybody listening to this podcast starts to apply for it, it might take three weeks lads right so let's not get too excited about it but if you're an irish passport holder i would strongly recommend that you at least look into it even if you don't end up getting it um it's a great time for the podcast we're starting off the year so i'm starting to try to line up a few interviews and there's a few absolute dingers and i'll tell you how this process works right because these are brutal lately in recommending people uh but you know some people will recommend people and their great ideas i was reading a book the other day and it was a swedish irish person it completely sort of slipped my mind that i want to speak to her and i'm hoping to speak to her in the coming days for next week's episode but then of course we have all of the organizations that we're going to have to speak to again we're going to have to speak to the irish chamber of commerce in sweden about their plans for the year uh, generous sponsors of the podcast and we have a couple of specific episodes to do on their behalf uh We'll also have to speak to the Swedish Irish Society. We'll have we have identified somebody other than Sophie Murphy. Not that I don't want Sophie Murphy on the podcast. She is de facto the co-host. She's been on it that much. We're going to talk to somebody else there just about the plans that the Swedish Irish Society has for the year and indeed for St. Patrick's Day, right? Now, the I mentioned at the top of the show there about everybody in Malmo getting together. Uh, in Fagan's pub there over the weekend and one of the things that I was thinking of I mentioned it before I'm going to mention it here again so as many people as possible hear it right we need ambassadors in the various different places around the place right up in Yavla or up in Lulio or in Karlstad or wherever else right wherever green is worn uh, to rob the title of Tim Pat Coogan's book right we need somebody to say look at you know I'll be the person who calls everybody up like you know who says right we're going to this place we're going to do this thing and Get in touch with me, get in touch with the embassy, get in touch with the Swedish Irish Society, and we'll do everything we can to help you, to publicise your events and to give you advice and to put you in touch with people and that kind of thing. So it doesn't matter. Like, if you know, there's only me and three other people here. Oh, fair enough, you know, do something with it, you know, because it's only true that, as we'll hear with Chris and the handball a little bit later on, it's only true people getting together that things happen, right? Nobody ever changed anything or nobody ever achieved anything sitting on their couch. So if we can all get together and see, and, you know, let's make St. Patrick's Day one of those places where we try to do something, no matter what small town we're in in Ireland, you know, if you're in North Shepping or Lynn Shepping or Yon Shepping or here the Mura or wherever you happen to be, let's try and do something, anything at all, right? Even if it's just a meet-up in a pub somewhere where we booked a table where the local Irish community can get together and have a drink and maybe listen to a, a bit of music or have a bite to eat or that kind of thing. So let's try to sort of increase and strengthen those bonds and strengthen those networks that we have in these places around the country. Now, if you want to strengthen this podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com for forward slash arrowman in Stockholm, right? If it was up to me, and it's not, it's up to you, 
everybody who would support the podcast would go there, chuck in a fiver a month, and that will keep the lights on here and the bleeding heat and bill of the studio this last few months has. Even though I was away, I had to sort of stop the pipes from freezing. So it cost a few, Bob. So the more people that can go to patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm and support the show, the better. From five a month, you can chuck in two euros a month. A five a month would be better. Why? Because it's more money. And the more people doing that, the happier I am going to be. If you want to make a once-off donation, if you hear a particular episode and you say, I wouldn't be given that chance of money every month, but I enjoy this chat with Chris O'Neill and I do like the bit of handball. So then you can go to your Swish app on your Swedish phone and you can Swish a few bob to 123-2424-166. That's 123-2424-166 and you can get stuck into that. Now, at the moment in Sweden, and I'll tell you exactly where in Sweden. I think it's in five locations in Sweden. It is in, let me see, it is in the Tele2 Arena in Stockholm, the Malmo Arena in Malmo, the Scandinavian, which I'm assuming is in Gothenburg, Kirchansta Arena, which is in Kirchansta, it's in the name, and the Husqvarna Garden Arena. Uh, the, currently, you have the Handball World Championships taking place in Sweden and Poland, with most of the big games taking place here in Sweden. Now, as you'll hear at the start of this, we think of how handball has been a different sport to what the rest of Europe thinks of handball. We call that Olympic handball. But because the World Championships are going on, and because Sweden are one of the favourites, and because it's a huge sport that maybe your kids will end up playing or already play, or that you play yourself, or that you're interested in playing in the winter when there's no Gaelic football or no rugby to be played, I thought I'd reach out to somebody uh, and talk about it. And the best person in the Irish community to reach out to, the oracle of handball, not just for the Irish community here, ladies and gentlemen, but for people everywhere, is Chris O'Neill. Now, Chris has always been interested. He'll tell you the story about how he got interested in the sport, but now he is on what they call the world feed. So anybody needing English commentary of this world championship is going to end up hearing from Chris O'Neill over the next three weeks or so, which is a fantastic achievement for an Irish person, for an Irish sports journalist. To be that important in their sport is just wonderful. And to be honest, I was surprised he had the time to talk to me at all. But talk to me, he did. And here's the conversation now. So all about handball and about Chris and about moving to Sweden and also a little bit about the Fringe Festival in Gothenburg, the Arts and Culture Festival that he sort of fell into. But I let him explain all that to you. Here we go. All right, Chris. When most people think of handball, they think of the alley, they think of the wall, and Michael Duxy Walsh winning 57 All-Irelands in a row. But handball in Sweden is something entirely different, right? So can we get down to brass tacks and explain in the simplest possible terms what the sport is all about? Well, that is the big challenge in Ireland is explaining the difference. I think the best way to put it is no walls and big balls. That's the difference between the two sports. Thanks very um, much, lads. Enjoy the world championships. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's the it's the thing that uh, I and all of my fellow Olympic handball uh, lovers in Ireland, as we call it in in Ireland, to distinguish it from the GA handball, have had to deal with over the years. But yeah, surprisingly enough, there is another handball, and it is the uh, the more popular one around the world, uh, particularly here in Sweden. As uh, I'm sure you know yourself with the World Championship, as we're recording uh, starting today around the Fantastic. country. 
and you're going to be an extremely busy man. I'm delighted that you took the time to come on and talk about it beforehand because it's one of those things, right? When we see people moving to Ireland, we love to see, you know, I think there's a, a Kurdish hurler playing for Leitrim or something like that, you know? And yet, you know, when Irish people come here, sometimes we look at sports like ice hockey and handball and they go, okay, you know, that's not really for us, right? So maybe we might start by by asking how you got into the sport. Did you discover it in Ireland or did you discover it some other way? No, I discovered in Ireland, luckily enough, uh, it was a Ukrainian family that moved to my hometown in Maynooth in Kildare. And uh, it was a handball family. Uh, both of the parents played it. They wanted their son to be able to play it. And so they offered it to uh, the local secondary school to, to teach the sport uh, after school twice a week uh, so their son could play. And yeah, me and a bunch of other people uh, in the school took an interest in it and yeah it became kind of a an unofficial sport for a lot of people in the in the school alongside the traditional sports and that was you know, in the first year of secondary school so uh, for me a good oh, 20 22 years ago and uh, it's been a, a love affair ever since then who did you play against at that point? Because Manus <laughs> in County Kildare, okay, you know, you're yes. on the doorstep of Dublin, et cetera, et cetera. But it's one of the problems that we have really with the GAA, I suppose, in this country. Mm. And of course, rugby there, your rugby playing friends down in Gothenburg. It's such long distances to travel and that kind of thing. Did you find other clubs on your doorstep that were already there at that stage? Yeah, I think it's very much the same like in GAA and rugby in Sweden. There's there are people who are really passionate about the sport and put in so much time to to make it work in these areas. So there were these hotspots all around the country uh, where people played it at at our age and through the ages until adult level. So uh, there was ourselves in Kildare. There were some teams in Dublin, of course, mostly in and around Tala. That was a bit of a hotspot for it. Uh, County Meath, there was a, a few teams as well. And then you'd have to go all the way over to uh, to Galway and Sligo to <laughs> to find some competition so yeah it was at a very like a hyper local level and then a national level straight away so we were lucky enough uh when i was growing up playing that there were enough teams um at a national level with every age group going up and and that kind of kept it interesting because yeah at, at that age when you're growing up and playing a sport all you want to do is play games i mean it's difficult to keep people motivated by the the idea of training and getting better. You just want to play against people. And, uh, and yeah, we were lucky enough to have that. And then also because most of the people who were leading these teams uh, and, and putting in the hours were uh, people who, who came from abroad and mm -hmm. had settled in Ireland. And so they also had a lot of international connections. So, you know, from the age of 14, uh, we were already taking international trips to play the sports so uh, exposed to the the wider world of handball at a very early age and, and that of course you know if you imagine it as a teenager playing sport is hugely motivating and inspiring and that kind of uh, you know keeps the the fire burning in that sense did you get absolutely hammered when you went away to Serbia <laughs> or Poland or you know these big sort of Sweden being a big handball yeah I, it, it had its uh, ups and downs let's just say I mean the there would be, I think the people who looked after us, the people who organized these trips would would know. So I remember the first time going, we kind of went on a, a cross-continental trip starting over in Belgium um, where, you know, you could actually win some games, then you go to, to Germany and then it's it's a whole other story. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's people who are playing uh, at a completely different level. But the good thing about it is in these countries like Germany and all over Scandinavia, there are so many levels to it as well. So just like in, in any sport in Ireland, you can 
you can find teams to match your level. You're not automatically playing against uh, people that are going to absolutely whip you. Uh, mm-hmm. But we definitely, definitely got some lessons over the years. Uh, that's that's something that has uh, stayed a constant throughout my handball playing career. That's for sure. Yeah, so when we started with Gaelic football in the Nordic region and here in Stockholm, we had a really, really strong team a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And, like, we didn't lose a game for years. And then we go down into European competition where you have, you know, big Irish populations for Brussels, GAA and Maastricht and this kind of... And Jesus, you know, it was like we didn't know how to play the game at all. Like, you know, and we were pretty good football, but these guys were just so far ahead of us. And okay, you learn, but there's very little crack to be had out of it. Listen, there's a lot of people going to be listening to this, right? And maybe they have kids of six, seven, eight years of age who are going to school and maybe playing this game for the first time. So how many players are on a team? How big is the court? What are the tactics? What is, what's the objective of the game apart from winning? Yeah, uh, so the basics, yeah, throwing the ball into a goal. Uh, it's very... I mean, how I like to describe it to people is in terms of the the technical side of things and, and how it works is in a very basic sense, there's a, a mixture between uh, rugby in terms of the upper body contact and, and football in terms of the, let's say, the skill and the, the idea of scoring goals. It's seven people aside um, with a, a squad of up to 16. So it's rotation all the time. There's uh, substitutes happening on a... On a rolling basis, uh, a game is 60 minutes long, so two halves of 30 minutes. And yeah, the idea is basically to, to score more goals than the, the opposition. There's a, a two by three meter goal, which I think people would know from uh, from field hockey uh, in an Irish sense. And the, the court is 40 meters by 20 meters. So about one and a half times a basketball court, which is another, let's say, a subplot in in playing the sport in Ireland because every single hall in Ireland is only built for basketball at the most, yeah. and uh, very few that are actually fitting for for handball because it is seven aside and uh, the court is is fairly big. And um, what's it like to play the game? Because you know I've often heard from Swedes now playing rugby for the first time and they're sort of thrown in there and it's chaos and they've no idea what it's going what's going on and fellas are grabbing them and girls are jumping all over them and that kind of thing. The first time you played an organised game of handball, how did that feel? Did, did you have any sort of understanding of what was going on around you? Do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's it's kind of a bit of an organised chaos in a way. There's uh, you know handball is full of controlled aggression and organized chaos so it is uh because the positions are very well defined and everyone attacks and everyone defends together in that sense it's a bit like basketball everyone has their positions everyone moves forward and attack everyone comes back in defense uh so there is there's a lot of kind of defined rules that uh that allow you to understand the game but yeah, there is a lot of, particularly at a young age, and the first time you play it, there's a lot of chaos. Funnily enough, I started out as a goalkeeper, which is the worst possible position uh, to start out in, I think, because uh, goalkeepers in handball, as you could probably tell from the score lines, you're having around uh, 50 to 60 goals on average scored in the game. So you're not, uh, you're not, you haven't got a lot of joy in that sense as a goalkeeper. I, I quickly moved out into playing in the court. So that my first experience of that was basically uh, seeing a lot of balls flying past me and picking them up in the back uh, from the back of the net. But as a left-hander, I was fairly quickly uh, shoved out into the court as uh, just like with left-footers in in uh, in uh, kicking sports like football and uh, and guy. Yeah, it's a uh, a novelty and uh, a rarity to be left-handed, and uh, there's a lot of advantages to that as well. But yeah, I think it is a uh, there's a lot of controlled. Uh, chaos in it 
it's a very easy sport to pick up, uh, but a very difficult sport to to master. I think you could say the same for an awful lot of sports. So to be fair, um, so in that sense, the you know the the fundamentals of uh, of sport for for kids or anyone, you know, it's catching, throwing, uh, jumping. Uh, they're the, the three main things to it. Uh, the contact sense comes a little bit later into it but uh in that sense it's very natural sport to play could you just take me through the different positions you started out as goalkeeper i actually know the better mm. in swedish than what i do in english which is quite embarrassing uh you mentioned yeah. that as a left-hander that means that you would play sort of on the right side of the court so to be, to be exactly. able to shoot with your left hand yeah yeah so exactly. maybe if we might go from that position that you played in and sort of go around because there's also no slam dunks there's an area that you can't go into you have to shoot from outside a particular line right yeah uh, so you you can jump from outside the line and into it as long as you release the ball before you land and hmm. so that's kind of one of the key key aspects of of jumping from the uh from the court is actually to get as close as possible or to get over the defense but going through the positions uh, as you said the goalkeeper uh they're in there the whole time for the most part and then there's six court positions uh there are two wingers on either side of the court uh one left wing one right wing their job is basically uh to be the fastest on the team they're running up and down the whole time looking to go on, on counter-attacks. They're the ones that usually uh, finish the the play on the wing. So they're not as heavily involved contact-wise. So they're not always the biggest uh, type of players, but uh, very athletic and uh, very speedy. Then you have uh, what they call a backcourt, which are three players playing uh, basically side to side. Uh, there's the right-back position, which would be mostly a left-hander, which is where I played in. A centre-back position, which is the like a playmaker position, uh, almost like a, a bit of a point guard uh, in basketball or, or centre midfielder in football, and then uh, a left-back uh, player. And they're usually the uh, three of the large, uh, larger players because they're very heavily involved contact-wise, but also need to be able to uh, to shoot over uh, defenders. So they're uh, the players that are most involved, let's just say, in the attack. They're on the ball the most. And then there's a, a position called the line player, uh, where they're in amongst the defenders. So it's a little bit like a center in basketball. Uh, they, in my opinion, have uh, one of the toughest jobs because they're literally in and among the defense. They're getting their ass kicked the whole time. They're trying to create uh, blocks, trying to create space for the uh, the rest of the team and uh, occasionally also get the ball in there uh, to score. So I think that's another really nice side of it is that there's a position for everyone, every type of body size uh, in the sport. Everyone has to be able to move, but everyone, uh, you know, depending on your size, handball's generally got guys uh, who are, you know, at least 190 tall uh, mm-hmm. at a professional level up to about two meters 10. So there's huge players in there, but there, there is a, there's a position for everyone, uh, regardless of the size and regardless of the speed, there's a place you can play in there. Tactically, like as you say, the goal is two by three meters. You have to jump from outside the line and shoot before you either land inside the zone or that kind of thing, or so you have to shoot from distance. How do you create the space necessary to score? Because as you said, the goalkeeper's job is really difficult. The ball's small, mm-hmm. it goes fairly fast, right? But you can't just run up there. You know, sometimes people look at it like they do with basketballs, God, oh, Jesus, they're scoring 140 points. So that must be easy. But it's not easy, Chris, is it? No. Mm-hmm. No, there's a lot of tactics involved in in that sense. A lot of set plays. Um, 
and that's a that's a key part of the sport as you you get into it more and and particularly at a professional level every team would have a a range of let's say 10 to 20 maybe even more set plays and variations in that which uh, which see players moving moving with the ball and moving off the ball. So if you're watching the World Championship, for example, over the next few weeks, then uh, you'll see a lot of movement off the ball. The players in the center, the playmakers kind of calling plays at the beginning. So the attacks will start slowly and then people start to move. And that's all about creating either overlaps on the on the wings or for the, the backcourt players, uh, creating blocks for them, uh, basically trying to create situations where you have uh, an advantage over the defense where you've got a bit of space to to shoot into. So that's um it's kind of a, a constant game between the attack and defense in that sense where the attack are trying to find ways to unlock the defense and the defense as well also doing different things to try and uh, disrupt the attack as much as possible by playing in different uh, defensive formations. Uh, you'll see a lot of the time it's uh, six big guys uh, standing outside this six meter area trying to block, but also people uh, moving out of position a little bit, focusing more on some players. So there's um, a lot of tactics to be learned in that sense when you're playing the sport. And it's it comes down to kind of split second decisions uh, and also perfect timing to to create that space in the end. So there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, if you just try to uh, to go up and shoot, uh, you're going to get, uh, yeah, you're going to get taken down. You're going to get blocked. And that is actually an interesting thing that every time a world championship or the Olympics comes around, particularly the Americans, uh, they love to, to hit Twitter and say, oh, you know, if we had all our best athletes in this, uh, we'd, dominate the sport it would be easy this is such an american uh sport and uh there's of course looking at it at first glance it could appear that way but uh finally the u.s are going to be in a world championship for the first time in 20 years so uh, it's taken them a while to to build up to that and it's uh, it's always an interesting conversation to to have with people who are really interested in the sport but um but don't quite understand the the nuances in it. It's a very nuanced game. This is the thing. They say that about everything. They say it about, oh, you know, rugby. Yeah, Jesus, no. If we got all the big lads from American football, that kind yeah. of thing. No, lads. It's not that simple. You know, there's a whole culture and there's a whole history, et cetera, behind it. Yeah. Speaking of history, um, how did you come to be in Sweden playing handball? Ah, well, that that is a, a, probably not a, a, the usual. It's not the usual coming to Sweden uh, story. I know for the, particularly in Gothenburg where I'm living, it's generally you you move here to work for Volvo or you move here because uh, somebody has brought you here, love interest. I decided to come here just to, to give it a go five years ago. Uh, so I was living in Vienna before that in Austria for five years. Um, basically when I finished university uh, in, in Dublin, UCD, I went to Germany first to play handball. Uh, kind of semi-professionally, uh, ruptured my ACL for the first of three times, and then realized that uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe I need to uh, <laughs> to think about something else. Uh, ended up going to Vienna and working for the European Handball Federation, so the the governing body for the sport in Europe. Uh, that was based in Austria. I worked there for their media department for five years, and towards the end of that, started drifting a bit more into the commentary side and uh, decided that I wanted to to work as a freelancer because working for the, the Federation meant only working at European events. So let's say mm -hmm. Champions League, European Championship, which is all really nice. But I, I you know, looked at the opportunities that, that could have been there, World Championships, uh, Olympics, and also working outside of 
uh, sport working outside of handball, which uh, which I do as well. So, yeah, I decided to to make a clean break in that sense, um, figure out where to to go if I was going to leave uh, the job in Vienna. I thought after five years there, it would be time to try somewhere new. I had Scandinavia in mind for for a while as a place to try out the, let's say the the standard of living uh, had always been something of interest that I got along well with with Scandinavians and also speaking to to people leading up to this decision um I had been to Gothenburg a couple of times of course I was there in, uh, for the women's European championship I spent some time there really like Gothenburg in particular and I spoke to people and they said that uh, of all the places in uh in Sweden uh and, and Denmark that let's say the most uh fitting to my personality would be Gothenburg in a sense because I'm sure you, you've been here. It's quite, I mean, it's a bit of a generalization, but I, I find it is very, very easy, a very social city, Gothenburg, mm. in that sense. It's very easy to meet people, to get involved, to kind of create a niche for yourself. Um, and also very central in, in Scandinavia. You know, Stockholm is a few hours to the east. Oslo is a few hours to the north. Copenhagen, a few hours to the south. So in a handball sense, also for work, it was quite central. And uh, I decided to give it a go. Uh, I didn't know uh, for how long it would be, but um, you know, between the handball side of things and then another thing that has really kept me in Gothenburg is working with the the Fringe Festival, so an arts festival that I'm a, a co-director of. Uh, that is not something I had in mind when I first moved here, but uh, there are two things that have really held me and, and the five years has flown by since then. How did you get involved in the Fringe Festival? Because, like, you know, when you think of, you know, the dedication of handball, etc., a lot of that makes sense. Going to Gothenburg yes. makes sense. Did you sort of go, oh, could I have to do something to make money here? Or was it, I have to do something to help somebody out here? How did you slide into that world? Uh, money is the opposite of what I'm doing. <laughs> it always is in the arts, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, yeah, so actually, it's, it's quite funny. And I have the, the Irish community in Sweden to thank for that. Uh, it was September 2017. I decided to come to Gothenburg for a week before moving over to hunt for apartments. I don't think I needed to explain how difficult it is to find apartments coming in from abroad uh, at first. So I thought I'd come for a week and, and hunt uh, before moving over. And uh, on my first evening here, I was looking at the Gothenburg Irish Facebook group. And um, somebody posted about uh, an Irish performer uh, at the Gothenburg Fringe that evening. And I was a huge arts and, and fringe fan. I'd been to the Edinburgh Fringe for probably five consecutive years before that. I had a, a real interest in it kind of as a uh, as a spectator, as somebody who, who just enjoyed the performing arts and uh, decided I'd go to it. And, um, and then went to a couple more shows that weekend. I thought it was a nice thing. And I said to myself at the time, once I settle in, I'll get in touch with them and see if they need some help with the the communications, the media side of things, because that was my, uh, let's say, my professional background. They did. They had none. So they, they did need a lot of help <laughs> in that sense, which was which was nice. So I got involved in that side of things. And as you tend to do with uh, these kind of passion projects, you get dragged deeper and deeper into it. Mm -hmm. And now, five years later, uh, running it alongside uh, two other people and a, a wider group. And the, the festival itself has grown really nicely. 
over the last five years, um, even to the point where there is some money involved now, which is which is a nice thing. I'm kind of 50-50 now between working in the arts and uh, working in sport, two very different fields, but they, they, they complement each other nicely. They're a nice uh, breath of fresh air uh, mm-hmm. to each other. And, and yeah, the festival is going great. We have uh, an annual festival in September. Uh, this year, it's going to be 10 days long. And then we've also got uh, seasonal events as well. So every three months, we have a smaller kind of showcase weekend. And uh, and yeah, it's it's a great kind of, for the international community here, I think it's it works really nicely because the festival itself is, let's say, 95% either in English or non-verbal, the performances. And uh, so it's something really nice for the the international community that isn't uh, offered so much for other pe- uh, by others. And uh, so in that sense, we've made a nice connection with the the people here and it's, it's grown really nicely the five years that I've been a part of it. So I'm guessing then that uh, if the performances aren't going to be in Swedish, well, then you don't really have much use for the Swedish language in your communication. So you can do everything through English then, yeah? Uh, that's I mean that's the kind of the the decision we made uh, a a few years ago to because the the team itself we have let's say a core team of of eight people now coming from six different countries so we have mm-hmm. Swedes in there but uh, we also have Austrians we have British people we have myself from Ireland we have uh, Italian Indian so it's uh, and and our community is very let's say very international so we try to make it as as easy as possible for them of course communications with with venues and and Swedish artists would be in Swedish, but the uh, even the Swedish artists themselves figure that it's better for them to perform in English mm-hmm. for the to get the the best reach possible. So, yeah, we have uh, we have some people who are uh, more fluent than myself in Swedish, but uh, I also realize that it's uh, particularly working with with the locals in that sense. It's something that uh, I've been working on to get better it's not perfect by any means but definitely working on the swedish how are you finding it i I like it a lot i mean i i was pretty i think i was pretty lazy at the beginning coming from austria because uh i kind of had the opposite experience when i moved to germany first after university i went right in the deep end i moved to this small town of twenty thousand people where all they had was a handball club it was just over what the old border would have been so uh, into East Germany. So everyone over the age of 50 at the time didn't have English as a second language. They had Russian as a second language. So I had to learn German straight away. And so coming here with with German and English, I found the, the comprehension was quite fine. So reading and, and understanding people, I think, was okay because you can find a, a synonym that works. Not so easy when you actually have to produce the language itself. You can't mm-hmm. just pluck things. So definitely learning the the vocabulary. Then uh, at a certain point, uh, I figured I had to to get my ass uh, in gear with that. And so yeah, it's getting better. That's for sure. The I think the issue always with um, with these things is when you've developed relationships with people where you're speaking English, it's difficult to then switch that over to Swedish with them because you're so used to. Uh, yeah. speaking one language with them but you know on the handball side of things uh with the club i play with here uh it's pretty much all in swedish which is great i mean there's myself there's a, a brazilian guy uh, a couple of norwegians and then the rest of the team is is swedish so it's uh, mm. very much swedish being the the first language and i think handball has been great for that anywhere i've gone because you're automatically connecting with locals there 
Well, that's the thing. And it's like ball sports tend to have a language all their own and you mm. you pick it up fairly quickly. You kind of know what you should be doing. Then you hear the words associated to that and off it goes. After playing semi-professionally in Austria, what kind of level have you played at in Sweden? Did you manage to make it among the elite here when you moved here to Sweden or are you just playing for fun these days? These days, just playing for fun. So, you know, yesterday was playing playing in a cup game uh, with the team where we... Uh, you know, it's literally a case of myself and a few other guys who, uh, you know, occasionally we can go to training twice a week, but for the most part, we all have our lives. And it's, uh, you know, the game we played yesterday, I think half the team hadn't actually thrown a ball in two months. So, you know, Jeez. it's uh, very much a ragtag bunch of, of people sometimes. But um, yeah, there was a couple of seasons, uh, mostly around around Corona, where it actually was interrupted a fair bit then that I tried to to play at a higher level um and and that was fine in terms of let's say uh you know matching that level but it is also a case of you know you're playing alongside a, a bunch of guys who were 20 21 trying to reach a, another level again yeah, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just committing the time you know to to be able to train pretty much every day of the week and then travel around the country every weekend or every second weekend uh it's not so easy when you have uh a uh, particularly working in, as you know, all too well, working in journalism and, and broadcasting uh, and working in the arts. There's no such thing as a nine to five Monday to Friday job. Every, you know, the weekends are work time as well. So finding that balance was tricky. Um, and so I'm happy enough playing at the level I am now where it's uh, a couple of times a week uh, training. If possible, uh, you can, you know, you, there's no obligation to go um, because everyone has their lives and then you, you enjoy the sport, but in Sweden, I think in Gothenburg, there's maybe nine different levels you can play handball in. Um, you know, the depth is incredible. So even uh, at my level where you're, you're training a couple of times a week, you, you have guys who, you know, there's one guy on our team who two years ago was playing for a Champions League team in Norway, decided to move back to Gothenburg to become a teacher. So you, know, you have quite a quite a variety of uh, of guys in there, which is which is really nice in a way as well. Yeah, it's fantastic to play with people like that, you know, because they tend to make everybody around them better, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, unless they're the kind of bloke or girl who's going, oh, you know, you really should be better. No, I'm not better than this. I'm 40 <laughs> years old or 50 years old. I'm I will be no better. Than In fact, I'll be worse next week, you yeah. know? And um, for those who are going to consider watching it, and it is, it's like, it's fantastic entertainment, if nothing else, you know, to get involved in the World Championships. Who are the teams? Who are the traditional superpowers? Who are the favorites now, Chris, in the tournament that's starting today as we're recording? Yeah, I actually think it's going to be a very Nordic central championship. Uh, Sweden are the reigning European champions from last year, uh, where they won a, a little bit surprisingly, but uh, Sweden were also in the last World Championship final where they lost to Denmark. So as it's a home championship, I mean, it's it's split between Sweden and Poland, the championship, but uh, the final will be in in Stockholm in the Teletur Arena, so it you know it can be considered a a home championship for Sweden. They have a great chance. Um, the team itself is is fantastic on paper, looks really good. Uh, what I think they they've done really well. They have a, a Norwegian coach, Glenn Solberg, who hasn't who's kind of gone his own way. He hasn't chosen the the best players on paper. He's gone with a, a collective of players that he thinks gets the job done best, which is has been controversial at times because of some world-class players who just haven't had a look in mm. in the last couple of years. But he's built a team that that have produced. They've got a, a European gold, so uh, which 
you know, European Championship can be, you know, almost considered a, a more difficult thing to win than the World Championship mm -hmm. as it's a very European-centric sport. Um, so, yeah, Sweden have a great chance. Uh, they will have a couple of, of huge tests on the way against two teams that are also considered um, favourites. So Denmark are always, let's say, perennial favourites. They're the reigning champions. Uh, they probably have the best team and they will be playing, let's say, quasi at home for the first week or two. They're going to be playing in Malmö. So practically the entire Malmö arena will be full of Danes for the first couple of weeks and before they move over to Stockholm for the quarterfinals onwards. Then Iceland have a surprisingly good chance this time. They're, they're let's say, a dark horse in many people's eyes. Uh, and Norway are always there, thereabouts, as they have uh, arguably the best player in the world, a, a guy called Sander Sogerson, uh, who is uh, is just phenomenal. So... The, the four Nordic teams in that sense have a really good chance. Uh, besides that, uh, France and Spain are uh, also perennial contenders. Uh, Sweden beat Spain in the final of the European Championship last year. Uh, France are the Olympic champions. They have great uh, tradition in the sport, uh, particularly France, just brilliant depth in the team. And then let's say outside of Europe, there's a couple of other European contenders in there. Um, but then Egypt would be the big non-European contender. They've got a great, uh, a great bunch of players. More and more of them coming to Europe to play. They hosted the last World Championship and uh, lost to Denmark in the quarterfinal in one of the greatest games ever played. It went to a penalty shootout. It was just phenomenal. Unfortunately for them, they're missing uh, one of their best players to injury. Uh, that is another aspect of handball we didn't go into. It is it is a bit of an injury prone sport at times, you know. Is it, Chris, is uh, it mostly knee imagine. injuries and that kind of thing, or what kind of thing do you suffer when you're doing? Yeah, it? knee knee and shoulder injuries, I would say. But um, yeah, it's it, I think in that sense, it's not too different to other high contact sports. I mean, it's not like rugby where you're going to get concussions all the time. That doesn't happen. Um, except for goalkeepers getting smacked in the face with the ball, but mostly knee, knee and shoulder injuries. Um, it's just a lot of overburdening. I think at the top level is the big issue, um, because they also they have a, a world or European championship every year. So yeah. there's a there's always a bit of controversy about that. With you know, it's not too different to other sports. Like in uh, you know, you hear about uh, FIFA looking to add more and more competitions, mm. add more teams to to really saturate. Uh, the market and get as much out of it as possible. The same could be said for for handball in a sense. But yeah, I think they Sweden have a great chance. Um, they're gonna have a, a fairly handy first round here in Gothenburg. They're they're playing Brazil uh, this evening as we're recording. Uh, also Uruguay and Cape Verde in their group. They should cruise through that. But then the the next round, it's let's say uh, an intermediate round, a main round where two. Uh, groups come together, another group phase. There, Iceland will be, uh, and Portugal as well, who are a fantastic team. So they'll have a couple of, of tough games they have to come through to get to the knockout stages. Um, if they do that they and finish first in the group, they have a great chance of going all the way to the final. So it would be great to see Sweden go all the way, particularly to the final week in in Stockholm at the Teletur Arena. Uh, a couple of years ago, they hosted the European Championship where... They they fell short. They got knocked out in the main round, and so they had the final weekend in Stockholm, but no Sweden in it, which was a you know uh, you need the home side to 
to just go a long way. The whole team goes there. It was like, ah, no, you know. It was great in a way because Norway were there and Croatia were there, and Croatian fans that they are ridiculous about handball mm-hmm. as well. They filled half. I don't know how ten thousand, twelve thousand Croatians found their way to Stockholm, but they did. <laughs> so there's always a hope for that. But I think um, between between the Nordic sides, they should uh, fill it up pretty well. I've I've heard that Kripanstad, where uh, where Iceland they're playing their first round, has basically been taken over by Icelandic people. So <laughs> maybe if you know anyone in Kripanstad who can confirm that, but basically they have a I think a four or five thousand seat arena which will be completely in blue for the first week. So yeah, things like that are really nice. And I think with Sweden winning the European Championship last year, the the appetite is very much there. Just handball in Sweden. Uh, I don't need to tell anyone who, who's based here is, is a huge sport. Uh, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, it was it was the sport because of the success. And the success of the national team has a big part to play in that. And it, it seems to be uh, coming back in that sense for Sweden. I think SVT have a documentary about Bengans boys, which is yeah, well exactly. worth a look if anybody wants a quick look at that. Um, you were like, it's a fantastic to see that we're going to have an Irishman on the microphone commentating for this. Now, obviously, yeah. is it via Sat that have the rights to broadcast in Sweden? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think yeah, they're probably in Sweden themselves. They they will have have the Swedish commentators um on on via Sat. I'll be on the the world feed, so to speak. So anywhere that uh either wants the English commentary or that uh, that has no TV deal, that'll be my voice on that as well, as well as all the the highlights and stuff like that. But I think yeah, here in Sweden, they also have it pretty well covered in terms of uh, the commentators. So yeah, I'll be I'll be around for for some uh, Swedish listeners. But if you prefer it in English, uh, let's just say everyone knows how to work a VPN, don't they? Never heard of them. Never heard of them. We don't we don't uh, encourage any sort of illegality on this show at all. Um, what kind of commentator are you, Chris? Are you a very energetic? You know, like there's a fellow used to do the darts. He used to shout the house down completely. Or are you more sort of considered trying to give background? I think it's Con Murphy who used to work with RTE. I think that man has shares in a highlighter pen company because he comes in with so many bits of paper and things highlighted left, right, etc. How do you prepare for it? And what do you like when you get on the mic in a good game? Uh, well, the interesting thing with with handball is generally it would just be one commentator at a time. So I'll be I'll be doing all the games alone here in Sweden, which I think for handball it works pretty well. You know, the because it is relentless, the action is very much nonstop. You don't need to worry about filling too much time. There's no, you know, tapping around in midfield to to kind of throw a few stats in to fill the air. So I think in that sense the the pace of the game kind of takes care of itself it is 60 minutes a lot of action so i try to to measure it uh to an extent i, I don't go uh zero to 100 straight away but as the game builds uh that definitely kind of takes over for me and i i would get carried away sometimes not to uh not not going too overboard but uh to try and I think the key for it is to try and convey the pace of the sport as well, because it doesn't always come across um, the the speed on TV as it is actually seeing it in front of uh, in front of your eyes or being down on on court levels. So also the way I try to speak, I try to speak around the the flow of the sport itself and how the ball is moving. Mm. Um, I do a lot of preparation, mostly kind of as a um, to jog my own memory with it. So. The funny thing is I have all these notes in front of me, but I would maybe look down 
twice or three times during the game if it's if it's a very good game and um, because the generally the the information is in there already but it's a nice thing to have a bit of a backup uh to have everything in there so yeah i tried to be a bit measured in the in the approach um but then as the as the game builds in uh to uh to match that as well and uh, definitely don't leave much time uh much dead air in that sense i i do yeah. do like to fill it up because i think that is the the best way to to convey the sport there's a great story. Um, Tommy Heinsohn was a great basketball player for the Boston Celtics back in the day. He was given the job as the analyst beside the play-by-play guy. He's a guy called Mike Gorman. They're about the same age. Tommy passed away there last year. They actually met him once. And the first time he came to do a game, they were sitting up on a balcony in the Boston Garden and he took Mike Gorman's notes and he threw them off the balcony. And Mike had been going through <laughs> stuff all day and all oh, this fell averages, this many points. I said, Tommy, what am I going to do? He says, we're going to talk about what we see. <laughs> and that was his thing. I was like, right, call it as you see it. We know enough between us that you don't need a... But having said that, it's often great to have a date of birth and what some fella has won before and, you know, how it went in the last tournament for these guys and that kind of thing, you know? So how, yeah, many, ga- yeah. how many games will you do in the course of the World Championship? Don't Please don't say Ooh. all of them. You'll be worn out. <laughs> well, uh, no, I'll be doing all the games here in Gothenburg. So there'll be six game days in Gothenburg. The first round is two games every day. The second round will be three games games every day so that's 15 there and for the first week i'll be going over to yearn shopping on the days in between uh to cover the usa's matches because espn have the rights for that so Mm. um i'll be on espn taking care of those games uh so that's another i think the usa will have seven games in total no matter what um so i would say it'll be close to around 30 matches Overall, thirty matches in the in the space of two and a half weeks. So, um, will you come up to Stockholm then for the the yes. knockout games? Yes, so I'll be there for the the quarterfinals onwards. Um, and then there's another commentator doing a world feed in in Poland, uh, a British guy called Paul Bla- uh, Paul Bray. Uh, we come together then for the the final day. There'll be four matches in the final day, and uh, we'll split them between the two of us. So yeah, there from uh, start to end, which. Uh, it would be a nice hectic time, but I, I would rather be over involved than than be sitting on this uh, on the side and just watching. Doing nothing. If Irish people in Sweden want to get involved in handball, is it just reach out to the local club, go down, watch a match in the Rimbo or wherever else, and uh, and see what's going on? I'd say, look at, I wouldn't mind giving this a go. Yeah, exactly. I think there's, as I said before, you know, in in Gothenburg, and it's the same case for a lot of cities. There's so many levels to play at, and. And that is a really nice thing about an established sport in a country like Sweden. You can go to a place where it is uh, a bunch of people who just want to train once or twice a week and and play for fun uh, up to, you know, let's say a semi-serious uh, standard and then beyond. So I think even if you're completely new to it or you have some references from other sports, there's, there's a way to get involved, uh, and particularly for families as well. Um, I know you know uh, Cormac O'Brien, who is uh, has his uh, one of his daughters very heavily involved in the sport now, a future Irish international, no doubt. Um, so it's a great family sport as well. You know, if you want to get your kids involved, and then also be involved in other areas of the sport. You know, I, I know a lot of people um, who I've played with in the the Irish national team over the years who have, or let's say, our second generation 
uh, Irish people, their parents moved over to Germany or moved to Sweden or Denmark, uh, got involved kind of in the community aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And then it was a natural thing for the the kids to get involved. So, yeah, I think no matter what your experience level is uh, or what your um, your level of interest in getting involved in, there's a, there's a space for you mm-hmm. in that sense. I think it's very similar to the the GAA in that sense in uh, mm-hmm. in Ireland. So, yeah, I would say just go along, uh, watch a game, see if it, it ca- captures your imagination uh, and then see if you can get involved. Do you know what we might do? We might do another pod- a podcast with you for the Global Gale podcast, which is another one I have uh, when you get up to Stockholm mm. and meet up with you there. Maybe we can talk more because I want to talk to you about the Irish team and our prospects and that kind of thing. But time is running out now. But I do have one final sports-related question for you, Chris. I know go that you it. played uh, Tom Chamney, who's recently on this podcast. <laughs> yes. pa- it was in Paddle the other day, did you? No, we, we, we played tennis together. Played tennis. Okay. I just yeah. need to know who won and how bad Tom took losing. Oh no, Tom! Tom took the victory. <laughs> I think it was, uh, yeah, it was it was close enough. But Tom, Tom is uh, is a better tennis player overall. He, uh, yeah, he, he said. I was listening to the the previous podcast, and he said, you know, he plays a little bit. He's playing a lot these days. You know, he's getting <laughs> he's getting involved in in tournaments. Uh, you know, he's getting a bit of a reputation as the uh, the hot headed Irish guy in the in the tournaments. So, the Irish John McEnroe, <laughs> was, the exactly. <laughs> Uh, but no, Tom's a great, great player. It, you know, his uh, he may not be an active 800 meter runner anymore, but he's the most annoying guy to play against because he does chase down every single ball. You think you have it won, and then he just finds a way to to get to it. That that 800 meter pace is there. So yeah, he he has the edge in that sense. But it's uh, it's always a, a great game. It's uh, as an awful lot of great athletes have said, it's only impossible until it's done. You know, I think there's a lot we can all learn from. Chris, thank you so much for talking to me. I shall meet you in the Tele2 Arena and we shall do this again. But for now, thank you very much for being part of the Irish in Sweden podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, Philip. There you go. That was the wonderful Chris O'Neill there. What a terribly nice fellow and a fascinating story altogether. And uh, do check out the handball. I think it's going to be on Viasat or Via Play or one of those channels over the next little while. But uh, if you're working with Swedes at all, you're probably going to bump into some talk about this. And of course, the cross-country skiing season is going on and the biathlon season is going on and all these things are going on. So... Get involved in them. See what your workmates are talking about and check it out. We've had Carl Lambert on the podcast here before talking about doing Vossa Luppets, the big uh, ski race. And I think back in the day there, we had uh, Thomas, um, not necessarily Swedish-Irish, but certainly Norwegian-Irish who competed at... uh, the Olympics and cross-country skiing for Ireland. So interesting to listen to and find something different to do because in one way, we're always talking to the Gaelic Games community about how to get Swedes to play our games. And we kind of have to start reciprocating that a little bit. And I often thought, to be honest, uh, and maybe you got the same impression from what Chris was saying there, that handball players would be great Gaelic footballers, boys and girls. So we really need to get down to the handball clubs and get involved there. And so the side looked at them and go, you know what, uh, during the summer here is a bit of all going on if you fancy it, because they don't tend to play during the summer, especially the recreational players, which is the kind of player I suppose that uh, Chris himself has become at this point, you know. So, um, Definitely worth taking that idea out there. Maybe actually if you're above in Yavla or if you're above in Lulio, you might do a bit of a swap. So you can go to your local handball club and say, look, we have a bunch of guys, a bunch of girls here working on sites during the day and they'd like a bit of a runabout uh, during the winter. And maybe we can, you know, you can try having a run out with us during the summer and come down and try Gaelic games and that. Because if we're going to have a future for Gaelic games, it means having 
natives, you know, local people, people who are born and bred here, including our own children, it has to be said. It it means having them involved in the sports, you know. So it might be a sort of an area for growth. Uh, it might be a, a source of players. It might be a source of contact with the local community. It might be a source of indoor training facilities, which Jesus knows we spent ages arguing over and fighting over and talking about. Uh, before we go, don't forget now that, of course, this being the time of the year that it is, the Six Nations is around the corner, and there is no better place to be watching the Six Nations, boys and girls, than by getting down to Martin Hessian's pub, Veerstrom's pub in Gamlastown here in Stockholm. Uh, there is, of course, Fagan's pub down below, but Martin has been a very generous and very kind sponsor of this podcast from the very beginning, and I'm very grateful to him for that. Book a table, because if you just rock up at the door, you're going to find yourself, you know, sitting in the window there where you can't see the television, or there'll be some big Egypt with a head in front of you, usually my head, it has to be said. Uh, so do try to book a table somewhere and make sure that uh, if you are coming in to watch the rugby the Six Nations games Ireland will be playing five games there make sure to tell them that you want to be there to, to, to watch the rugby right? so that they don't put you in some quiet uh, little corner where great place for a first L Tinder date not that great if you're cheering on the boys in green right? and of course don't forget that the girls in green will be taking part in their own competition so you can also book tables for that uh, in the coming weeks we'll be looking to all those things and you know try to structure things a little bit better this year uh, in terms of letting you know what's coming on well in advance so when the Gaelic football clubs go back training that I'm hoping to be able to bring you all that kind of news of the when and the where and the what they're looking for and how you can get involved and of course we'll talk to the Swedish Irish Society about what they're looking for ahead of their AGM and indeed ahead of St Patrick's Day but of course, at the end of the day, I want to be talking about what you're interested in. So if you want to ping me on Instagram, if you want to ping me on Twitter, if you want to give me a call, if you have me number, find me on Facebook, report me to missing people, have me brought to your house by the police, whatever it is you need to do to get in touch, do it because I'm more than happy to hear from you. Because like I say, community podcast lads, this is all for and about you. And to a lesser extent, me waffling into a microphone every week, but it's all foreign about you. So do let me know if there's something that everybody else needs to know, or that if there's something that you'd like them to know. If you've written a book, if you've written a poem, if you're doing a gig, start a company, get on to me and do all those things. Right, listen, we're running out of things to say, so we shall leave it there. Back with another episode next week. Uh, as I say, today, there is a stretch of the evenings. Not going to call it grand stretch of the evenings yet, lads, because that's not where we're at. But uh, we'll get through this winter as we've gotten through every winter to date. Uh, in the meantime, look after yourselves, look after one another, and I will be back to you next week with an up- another episode of the Irish in Sweden podcast. Good luck, everyone.